0: Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day again. How's everyone doing? Doing good? Sweet. Well, We we will be in the book of James, so you can turn there now if you'd like. We'll jump into James chapter 1, verse 2 through 18 here in a few minutes. On a brisk fall night... At Chapman University in Southern California, when I was 19 years old, my life drastically changed. It was just another baseball game, just another swing of the bat for that matter. But this time I heard a crack in my wrist, and the pain was overwhelming. After seeing a few doctors, I was told that I was going to have to sit out the season and get surgery... Remove a bone and start this road to recovery. All the universities and pro scouts I was talking to no longer had any interest in me. To them, I was good for one thing. And now that one thing was gone I couldn't hold a baseball bat. For the first time in my life, I didn't know who I was. I mean, what happens if I don't come back from this injury? My entire identity was wrapped up in the game of baseball. So what now? Who am I? Over the next month, I I needed to figure out a plan B. So I read some self-help books and medicated my pain with partying. But to no avail. Still totally broken and without direction or identity. I decided, hey, why don't I check out church? Kanye West had had a popular song um, in that time called Jesus Walks. This worked for some people, I thought. Maybe it'll work for me. So I went to church. It was a mega church in Orange County. And it was there where I heard the gospel for the first time. It was there where I encountered Jesus and everything Changed. Walking into that service on that Saturday night in November of 2007, I was totally dead in my sins. But that night I had heard that Jesus lived the life that I couldn't live, died the death for sins that I deserved, and resurrected from the grave, defeating death once and for all. And through God's gift of faith that night... I walked out of the building a new creation in Christ. So as my journey began and I started to grow as a Christian, I was also starting to grow in my theology. The church I belonged to and I got saved at was part of a larger movement, the Word of Faith movement. The same theological roots to what is known as the prosperity gospel. I was taught, yes, Jesus died for my sins. But what was just as emphasized were all the benefits that came with being God's children. And I'm not talking about adoption, justification, and union with Christ. I'm talking about health, wealth, and happiness. They are yours in Christ. Receive it by faith. I was told, Rick, name it your best life imaginable and claim it by the blood of Christ and it is yours. The reason this theology is so attractive is because it takes our culture's understanding of the good life, gives it a little Christian spin, and then in the name of Jesus, go get all your heart desires Well, over the next few years, I saw many people who seemed to love Jesus fall away from him. And quite honestly, looking back, I don't blame them. That theology can't handle adversity, trials, a season of suffering, loss of job, barrenness, betrayal, death. Because if you've been naming and claiming prosperity healing, or wealth, all in the name of Jesus, and then nothing happens, or maybe your situation even gets worse, well, there are two options. You didn't have enough faith, or God is not real. Now, in God's sovereign providence, right before I entered into a season of suffering myself, my word of faith, genie-in-a-bottle theology, got shattered and in a big God theology was built in its place. A theology where God is supreme over all things, not me and my magical faith. A theology that can not only handle suffering, but also gives you a perspective on what God is up to in your suffering. We live in a culture obsessed with comfort, We will go to extreme measures to make sure trials stay far and far away. Many people even struggle with constant anxiety about future trials. Trials that aren't even their current reality. We live in a culture where our kids are coddled. And we think keeping them from failure and difficulty is good for them. What happened to the old saying, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. And if we're honest with ourselves, though our formal theology may be far from the prosperity gospel, what about our lives? Are we not often functionally living out the prosperity gospel? Comfort, cozy, content, consumers, I know these are some of my idols, creating environments in the suburbs to keep even the sound of trial miles away. As we begin in the book of James, he wants us to jump, he wants to jump into this conversation. He's writing to a group of people who are exiles. They've been scattered because of Christian persecution outside of Jerusalem. Trials, Suffering, tribulation, this is the air they breathe. And James is going to tell them, he's going to tell us, not to run from our trials, but rather to see what God is doing in the midst of your trials. That some of God's best work in our lives come through seasons of hardship. So if you're not already there, James chapter 1. James chapter 1 in our passage this morning, James is going to plead with us that wherever we find ourselves, whatever tough season we are in from criticism to cancer, that we that it would not finish us off as Christians, but rather we would stay the course, growing in maturity until we receive the crown. So let's jump in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. Or better translation, brothers and sisters. This is his plea to the people of God. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Right away, I love how he doesn't pigeonhole a specific trial. James is pretty broad. When you meet trials of various kinds. Post-fall, life is full of trials. Some are tougher than others. But this passage on suffering is for all trials. This text is for most of us in here. Is there a trial you're going through right now? James says, count it all joy. Now, some hear these words and they think the Christian life is full of smiles. Is James saying, let's be chipper, happy, Filled with joy when life sucks? Is that really what he's commanding us? When we find ourselves in a dark season, be joyful. You may be thinking James has no grasp on reality. James doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know how hard my marriage is, how crazy my kids make me. How lonely I am. He doesn't know what it's like being sick. Or someone you love sick. And the doctor has no answers. He doesn't know depression. Like I've experienced it. James has no clue what it's like to be betrayed. By those he thought were friends or family. Some people literally think because of this verse. Christians should always feel happy. But here's the thing. James isn't telling you to feel a certain way. James is telling you to think a certain way. Pastor, theologian Sam Alberry says Notice James says, count it, consider it. He is not telling us so much how to feel as how to think. He is not saying, pretend this is fun. No, James is telling us to think about our trials in a certain way. There is a point of view we need to adopt, a particular way to consider what is going on and what is going on in our suffering. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The only way to gain muscle in the gym or wherever you work out is to tear muscle, right? By putting your body through hard workouts. Well, James is saying, count it joy when you are facing hard situations, because in this, your faith is being tested and it's doing something. It's producing steadfastness. Verse four. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If someone were to ask me, Rick, what do you most long for? I'm not tempted to say suffering. Bring it on. Like one of my best friends in high school, who became a a, a recon marine soldier and came back from boot camp with a, a tattoo on his collarbone suffer in silence. As he eagerly awaited awaited deployment to Iraq. I praise God for guys like my friend, but I'm not wired like that. And I don't think this passage is telling us to go out looking for suffering. To get yourself into the greatest trial you can find, all to the glory of God. But if someone does ask me, Rick, what do you most long for? I think my answer would be, I I, I think biblically the answer is conformity to Christ. I want to look more like Jesus. Well, trials, friends, trials do just that. We don't look for them, but we do consider it joy when they come because they will grow us up to look like our Lord. A faith that is complete. Complete. Whole, mature, not lacking anything. This is the kind of faith we need, and it comes through trials. And James is not saying that suffering is good in and of itself, but rather what God can accomplish through suffering. That is glorious. So when it comes, don't waste it. He uses Trials to bring about his work of transformation in the lives of his people. So consider it, consider it, count it joy. But as trials bring our faith to maturity, they can also leave us with more questions than answers. Lord, what should I do? Lord, give me direction as I don't know up from down in this storm that I'm in. Lord, give me wisdom. And that's where James goes next. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, this is not just a random verse about wisdom. This is wisdom needed during trials. And James is going to motivate these Christians and us to pursue wisdom during trials by reminding us of some good theology. First, God gives generously. Unlike Chipotle, where I need to ask for extra, extra, and please, bro, just a little bit more chicken. (laughs) Not God. We ask for wisdom. He generously gives us more than we need. And second, he gives to all who ask. This is not for the VIP Christians. This is for everybody. And third, he gives without reproach, without finding fault. He's not shaking his head. Like, don't ask me for wisdom, kid. You've got yourself into this mess. You can certainly get yourself out of it. No. He's a loving father. And when his children ask for wisdom in the midst of a storm, he gives them wisdom. He loves his children. But there are conditions. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The prosperity gospel folk, they love this verse. But they will tell you outside of any context to what James is speaking about. Of course, they won't speak on suffering, which is the context to this verse. They will just say, look what James says, ask in faith, do not doubt, name it and claim it in faith. And if what you've asked for does not come to pass, well, you're probably the double minded man. You most likely let your faith doubt that person will not receive anything from the Lord. That's what James says. You need more faith or maybe you're not giving enough. Many of us aren't tempted to think like that but we can still totally misunderstand this verse. We can believe that that James is saying that there is no place for doubting in the Christian life. When we ask God for wisdom in the midst of trials, it's 100% confidence or nothing. Unfortunately for us, that's not what he's saying either. Or else would any of us be given wisdom in the midst of trials? James is actually speaking about somebody with split loyalties. The phrase double minded man, literally double souled. This is a phrase we don't find anywhere in ancient literature until James. He probably coined the phrase himself. Double souled. This is someone with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. Like when Jesus says, No one can have two masters. That's what James is talking about. This has nothing to do with having doubt. I hope in our doubt we would pray, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. But here this has everything to do with your allegiance. Again, Sam Elberry says, the doubter is someone who wants to hedge their bets both ways. They'll ask God for wisdom, but they'll also look over their shoulder to see if anyone has anything better to offer. They'll check out what the Bible says, but they'll also check out what the wisdom of the world says. They don't believe God's ways will necessarily and always be the best ways. They are double-minded, trying to live in more than one direction at once. They think they can switch between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom at will and get the best of both. Miriam Kamel, New Testament scholar at Regent College, she says this, This description hits close to home in an age of nominal Christians who attend church from time to time, perhaps even regularly, but who refuse to let God interfere with their daily lives and goals. This is the two-souled person, the double-minded man. When it's convenient, follow Christ. When it's not, don't. Do you find yourself in this category? Because this person, James says, is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's keep working through our passage. James is not finished dealing with With those suffering, though at first glance in this next section, James seems to get distracted and move off topic of trials and gives us an excursus on wealth, but that couldn't be further from the truth. James, as a pastor, knows people all too well and how often our economic situation actually plays a role in how we cope with suffering. James knows that these Christians outside of Jerusalem, many whom were former members of his church, and likewise us today, are more affected by our financial situation or lack thereof than we'd like to admit. He has a word for two different groups of people in the church, the haves and the have nots, when dealing with trials. And he actually has the same advice for both groups. Take pride in your position. Boast in the gospel. So let's begin with the have-nots. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Exaltation or in the NIV, high position. This is the same word used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the heavenly realm where Christ is. Has ascended. James is saying, "In the midst of your trial, don't look at yourself, how the world may look at you. Poor, weak, outcasts of society. No, no, no. You are rich brothers and sisters. Look at your high position in Christ. Because of the gospel right now, you have all that you need. Get your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Because through faith, you have been united to him by the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Right now, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. James is saying, spend some time looking around up there. Because of the gospel, all the benefits of Christ are yours. Think on this. Stop looking at the little Bitcoin you may have hoping for a miracle. Stop stop obsessing over your social media feeds and how awesome everyone else's life seems. Get your eyes on your high position. Boast in the gospel. And what does James have to say to the haves, those in the church who are doing quite well for themselves financially? Take pride in your position. Boast in the gospel. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Look at verse 10. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In a world where we are constantly told the good life is to accumulate more and more stuff. Bigger piles of wealth. Shinier toys in the garage. Bigger and newer houses. James brings the rich some rather humbling news. In the midst of trials where we can be easily tempted to look for security and comfort in our bank accounts, our emergency funds, our 401ks, and how easy it can be to numb the pain by buying the latest and greatest car or phone or coping your weary soul by remodeling your kitchen or grabbing a bottle. James says, no, boast in your humiliation. The gospel is extremely humbling news to the rich that apart from Christ, their spiritual bank account is past due. That no amount of money can make them righteous before a holy God. James wants the rich. He wants many of us. To boast in the fact that as we come to the foot of the cross, we bring nothing but our sin. And through faith, Christ takes our sin from us and gives us his righteousness. Nothing brings humility and gratitude like the cross in the midst of trials for the rich. There are some things money can buy. Right standing with God is not one of them. We literally take nothing from us. We we literally take nothing with us from this life. We're like a flower of the grass here today. Gone tomorrow. James says one commentator says both types of Christians, the rich and the poor must look at their lives from a heavenly, not an earthly perspective. That, my friends, is how you get through the valley of the shadow of death. That is how we live in this fallen world. Take pride in your position. Boast in the gospel. Oh, the importance of getting an eternal perspective in every season, but especially in seasons of pain, suffering, trials, and as we boast in the gospel, like one author says, we can look forward with greater anticipation to the day when all trials will have come to an end. And when the only thing weighing us down will be the crown of life, which God will place on the heads of all who treasure him. Look with me at verse 12. This is James' beatitude, influenced by his brother in the Sermon on the Mount. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now I know many people actually think this will be a physical crown. I kind of hope so. I love hats. I love wearing them. I love collecting them. I, I don't have a crown, but that would be pretty sweet. But literally this text translates the reward which is life. The reward, which is life. For, for those who remain steadfast under trial, for those who have stood the test, for those who love God, we have an award ceremony worth waiting for. Our reward, which is life. Eternal life with Jesus our Lord. But James knows. The test of faith is not easy with every trial comes a host of temptations. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. When we find ourselves in the midst of trials, don't our temptations go to the next level? James knows this, and he wants us to know that our temptations are not God-given. Some say, God will never give you more than you can handle. Don't say that to the author of this book, James, whose life ended when he was beaten with a stick. After he was thrown off the temple mount for following christ i 'm pretty sure that was more than he could handle, unless what they mean is that God will never give you more temptation than you can handle, which would be sort of true because God does not give any temptation in the first place. How easy is it us how, how easy is it for us to blame others? right This goes back to the garden. God, the woman you gave me, she did it. We say Satan's just attacking me lately. Or or, or porn's just trying to trip me up again. Or God's really tempting me in this season. No, don't blame God or even the temptations themselves. Like the problem is outside of you. James says, look inside yourself. Not your genes, your parents, your peers, your circumstances, your childhood, your culture, and definitely not your God. Each person is tempted by their own desire. I love Martin Luther's definition of sin. He says, humans turned in upon themselves. That's what is happening when we are tempted. And if we don't kill these desires early... It gives birth to sin. And when this thing grows, it eventually brings forth death. James is saying, count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds, church. Because God uses trials to mature us. But with our trials come temptation. So James is also saying, consider this a warning, brothers and sisters, kill sin, or it will kill you. And instead of blaming God for what he does not give temptations, James is going to end our passage this morning by praising God for what he does give. Look down with me at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Not only do we have the tendency to forget what we are still capable of, this side of eternity, but we're also prone to forget who God is and what his character is like. He is our gracious Heavenly Father who gives us, his children, good gifts. James reminds us that from the enjoyment of a sunset to the air we breathe, the health in our bodies to the laughter of our children, good wine and food to relationships and art, everything in between, every good gift is from the hand of God. We have to just stop throughout the course of our days more often and just take some praise breaks, right? But then there's a gift from God that's on a whole nother level. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of all his creatures. James is most likely the first New Testament letter penned. James isn't speaking about other New Testament texts because there are none. He's not speaking about the Old Testament. The word of truth is James' shorthand for the gospel. And of God's own will, he brought us forth, his new creation people by the gospel, the word of truth. What is the gospel? The long Anticipated Messiah who who takes away the sin of the world and establishes his kingdom. He has come. And by Jesus' sinless life, sin atoning death on a cross, and his victorious resurrection from the dead, brings us the greatest news ever. Our sin in exchange for his righteousness. Righteousness. But this good news also demands a response. Repent, turn from, and believe the gospel. If you don't know Jesus as Lord this morning, if someone or something else has your allegiance, turn from your ways and come to him by faith. And it is only because of the gospel, by faith alone, that we become new creations in Christ. Jesus is the first fruit as he rose from the dead. And those whom James is writing to, those with new hearts, are the first fruits of all his creatures. And we, likewise, through faith, are grafted into this family tree. So like I asked earlier, Do you find yourself in a trial this morning? Jesus says, don't be surprised. In this world, you will have tribulation. The question is, do you know what God can or is already doing in your trial? Maybe you're far enough along in this season of suffering. You've already seen him work. Your life might be filled with, with tears and sorrow, but you're considering it joy. He's maturing you. Do not lose heart, beloved. Blessed are they who remain steadfast under trial. Maybe you've just found yourself in a new trial that you did not expect, and you need wisdom. My dear brothers and sisters, ask God for wisdom he will give it to you or maybe you are doing everything possible to keep yourself from trials comfort cozy and consuming this is the aim of your life your theology on paper is legit but functionally the prosperity gospel is where you live saints let's boast in the gospel, take pride in our position in Christ and see from God's perspective that through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God conformed to the image of his son. God doesn't exist to make you the best version of yourself on your terms. But God uses trials to complete the work he has started in you. So whether you're in a trial or you just know they will be coming, take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And as I close, take note. Your ability to count it joy in the midst of suffering, your progress of steadfastness, having taken its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing and your strength to stand the test and receive the reward, which is life is not dependent on how strong your faith is, but rather on the object of your faith. Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson says, My security as a Christian does not reside in the strength of my faith, but in the indestructibility of my Savior. We must get our eyes on Jesus, church. He is our ultimate example in trials. When he was tempted, he never gave in, not once. When his friends betrayed him and he was headed to Calvary... The book of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. With a smile on his face, heck no, blood coming down his face, crying on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he knew what God was doing in his trial. That's why he could consider it joy. God the Father was using his life to save sinners like you and me. So as you continue to endure the trial you find yourself in, you don't need to feel a certain way. But James does want you to think a certain way. Consider it joy like we see in the cross god can turn ashes to beauty amen? amen amen let's pray lord we thank you for the cross we thank you that you show us in the cross that you can turn the worst of situations into the greatest news ever Lord i pray that you would be with us at rp as many of us in this room are in trials right now. God, help us to consider it joy. Help us to get your perspective in our trial. God, I pray that you would be with us as a church, that we would be able to rejoice with those rejoicing and yet weep with those who are weeping, that we face trials with one another. Lord, thank you for your grace, for your strength, and for your son. we pray this all in his name, amen.